0: Expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a twenty-four-seven support community, created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com/thrive. That's eckfeld
1: slash thrive Welcome everyone, this is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt, I'm your host. Our guest today is Nick Tarasio he is CEO at Ventura Air Services. We're going to talk to Nick about really what it takes to run a service company these days, and, and a pretty unique one. As an air service company, airline, you know, helping people with flights, and uh, getting people A to B, being a pilot, running a company, a lot of things going on for Nick. And so I'm really curious to have this conversation really kind of unpack that, and, and how this has played out for him, what he's learned as an entrepreneur, as a leader, as a CEO. Uh, and really, what we've learned about service companies in today's kind of modern, fun age, and uh, we're going to dig into that. We're also going to kind of dig into what Nick calls the pilot mindset—a fascinating kind of concept. And I always love when people have a strategy of of how they approach business, how they approach their leadership strategy, and you know, really what he's learned as a pilot and how he's applied it to. His, his job as a leader, and really other areas of his life. I think that's um, great takeaways embedded in there, so we're going to have a chance to unpack and hopefully have a little fun. I've known Nick for some time through EO, the Entrepreneurs' Organization, but I haven't done a deep dive on the business, so I'm, I'm kind of curious to have this conversation and learn more about the background and really what it takes to run a service company like this. With that, Nick, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So, before we get into what you're doing today and kind of the nature of you know air services, and I know there's a lot of kind of movement going on in this industry, and people have been kind of playing around with lots of different models. Let's understand the backstory. Like, how did you get into flying? How did you become a pilot? Is this, you know when you were in kindergarten, did you know you wanted to run an air services company? I mean, what was what was the backstory for you in, in becoming an entrepreneur?
0: Yeah, so I, I didn't know any differently about aviation because I grew up in a flight school. My parents started school when I was two. So uh, the quick story on that is in third grade, I, you know, the first day of school, everyone was asked what they did over the summer. And I said, I flew a plane. And the teacher said, no, Nick, you flew on a plane. And I said, no, no, I actually flew the plane and I logged the time. And she ultimately called my mother and said I was a pathological liar. <laughs> and, um, so that was the first time I realized that I had a very different life than other kids. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so that was where my love for Flying had just kind of been fostered and growing up yeah. and flying down to Disney World with my family yeah. uh, a bunch as a kid and the taking over the business was something that I did partly because I I just figured I'm a nerd and my family was struggling with, with the you know natural course of growing a business especially one in mm-hmm. aviation and I was like how hard could this be so the arrogance of a you, you know 19 year old through 27 actually I think I carried most of that arrogance for about eight years of like <laughs> how hard could this possibly be and. I now understand that we're in the Olympics of business and the Olympics of markets. So it's like yeah. New York private jet company. Good luck. Fun. Ride. Yeah, exactly.
1: Exactly. <laughs> well, I'm curious how much of that, you know, I mean, arrogance, it can, that, that kind of situation can go either way, right? It could be, you know, slightly delusional in a good way. And that, you know, you're not kind of stopped by, you know, things that probably would stop other people. You know, on the other hand, it means that you might, you might take risks or you might run into kind of landmines in different ways. Like how, how have you kind of unpacked that period? You know, in terms of how did it serve you, and and how did it not serve you as you were kind of getting involved in the business side of things?
0: Yeah, so I mean, that's an interesting question, right? The when you look at like a lot of the movement that's happened in the world or historically, when you open up a history book, I often wonder how many of those people were arrogant or didn't know any Uh better. They were ignorant or arrogant, one of the two. Either one is is a problem. But I think like the world does move forward because of people's crazy pursuits, and I think it requires some level of delusion to do. Anything that statistically doesn't make sense and running a business, growing a business, as you know, yep. man, this is a crazy thing to do to try to build a business, especially in an industry that's so sexy and rarely makes any money. So yeah, I, I think in many ways it's, I was the right person for the time, right? It's yeah. uh, it took someone who didn't know any better, but had confidence and, and believed in oneself to say, I'm going to bulldog my way through this, no matter what it takes. And now here I am at 40 going, that was exhausting. <laughs> That was totally insane. And again, I'm glad I did it. I learned a ton. I, I, you know, I think we learn definitely the things that abuse us the most are the things that we learn the most from. Hopefully, otherwise we're just insane.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly.
0: So I'm glad. I'm glad those conditions were met. I do think my life was a, a wonderful journey thus far. And um, from that perspective, though, I think that now the lesson is okay. It's wonderful that I've done that. The the whole like you know what got you here won't get you there concept. Mm-hmm is now it's time to take on a different approach and say, okay, you know, it's great. I cut my teeth doing all this wild stuff, uh, but as my business coach would say, You've built a business on diving catches, and maybe it's better just to stand where the ball's going. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. You move yourself so you can actually be in a good position to catch it. Exactly. Yeah, and let's just unpack the business model a little bit so people kind of understand what what this really means. So, uh, how I guess when you're providing services, what do you exactly provide? What what kind of what is your business model? Who's your core customer? How do, how does this business actually work for someone like you?
0: Sure. So we ultimately serve anybody that wants to have a private aviation lifestyle. So the core customer for us, oddly enough, is the person who wants to own an airplane. And I think there's a dream of aircraft ownership for a lot of people, but it's very hard to make that financially prudent to do so. Even if you have the money, a lot of people struggle with, do I really want to spend that kind of money? Yeah. So what we've done is said, look, we're going to be a financial company that operates airplanes. Mm-hmm. And what we'll do is we'll go out and buy the plane for someone, do the you know the the pre-purchase inspection which is like getting a home inspection if you're buying a house mm-hmm. uh we put it into operation we cover all the fixed costs of the plane we do all the staffing and crewing and maintenance and everything like that so what ends up happening is people can buy an asset take 100% bonus depreciation in 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 the year that they buy it so they get this huge tax benefit operate their own airplane at their at direct cost like fuel Mm -hmm. and some maintenance costs, and then we cover everything else. So that was the, the core model was saying people want to own airplanes. How do we make that possible for them? And then what we do is we offset their ownership costs by chartering it out when they're not using it. It's like a timeshare. So that's our core business model. So really we are serving charter users, but we do that to make the model feasible for the aircraft owner. So we'll sell 90% of the flights that happen on an airplane will generally be for charter customers, not for the owner of the plane. And again, we have our own in-house maintenance and avionics. We'll refurb the airplanes, we'll keep them up, we'll do all that all that stuff as well. Mm-hmm. And so it's really kind of all sides. We're like an old school business in the way of like we're you know we're not uh, what do they say? like go uh, narrow and deep. We <laughs> yeah. are we are we can't go narrow. It's just too integrated of an operational business yeah. to be able to hand off all these functions to other people. So we really do all of it, the buying, the selling, the management, the financial management of it advising on some of these structures maintenance avionics everything like that so it's a very very complex business that does just many different types of people in the business to pull this off
1: yeah and and what are the core functions like if if you look at things that you have to do particularly well as a business To compete and make this whole thing work like the top, you know, three, four, five of them that that really makes this business model work.
0: First, I'll just kind of go sequentially in an ownership lifecycle. We got to know how to buy the right planes. So being able to go out, find the plane, assess it, negotiate it and make sure that we bought an airplane that's not a maintenance nightmare on the other side of the purchase. Yeah. So that's number one. Number two uh, would be the maintenance required to keep that plane up. It's one thing to buy a plane right, but really the the cost of maintenance is the thing that's going to make or break the deal. So having our own internal maintenance team to support that, and not only in New York, but if the plane breaks down on the road, we have to be able to very quickly gather up local maintenance people and have them fix the airplane. So like a jet's only as good as its ability to fly. So you're not impressed yeah. if your jet's grounded when you need yeah. it. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. maintenance is a key function. Beyond that, the ability to sell the charter on it to pull demand. So we've got uh, an incredible sales team of about, uh, there's about six people involved in just being able to sell these things out to the market and maintain price points and make sure pricing accuracy and everything like that. Yeah. Beyond that, really probably the most important thing is our backend financials is it's such a low margin business that you gotta be, you gotta be really good at scorekeeping yeah. and looking at, Oh, fuel went up. We need to make slight adjustments. So I would say generally our financial controls are super critical on the other side, as long as like cash reserves and all that stuff. So I'd say yeah. that those are probably the four, the four key areas. Pilots, I mean, that's important. Being able to operate the plane is important, but I'd say Mm -hmm. that that's so regulated and people are trained so well that it's not as hard of a thing to pull off. I think most charter companies are really good at the flying part of the airplanes.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I would would imagine that like, like a lot of businesses that sort of the devil's in the details, particularly on that financial side, like if you can't, you know, a little, a little change in one piece of cost can wipe out margins and wipe out profit pretty quickly if you're not careful and you don't, exactly don't offset it. Yeah. And over this period, what are some of the things that you've had to learn, you know, going from, you know, kind of a pilot to being a leader to being a CEO? What are some of the transitions, transformations that you've had to go through?
0: I mean, the single biggest one, I think, is where I get my work satisfaction from. I started out as a mechanic, then a pilot, and now I don't even see airplanes most days. So... (laughs) It's been at the end of the day saying, did I do good work when, you know, if you fix an airplane and it flies out of the shop, you know, you did good work. If you fly a charter flight and someone gets to the other end of their destination and greets their family or whatever it is, you get this sense of like, I completed something. Mm -hmm. So I think really changing my perspective to, I won't get that closure of the loop and I have to spend a lot more time looking way backward. I have to look a year back to really have a sense of satisfaction and go, look how far we've come as a company. But it's so many, like it it feels like tectonic shifts, right? It's just like inching forward, inching forward. Um, So I think that global perspective is really important. And also forcing myself not to get caught up in the minutia. As much as I want to be the hero to dive in and solve the things (laughs) that I know really well, (laughs) I have to be like, I have to let my team do this. I cannot be messing around with a spreadsheet today when instead I need to be finding partners for a new thing a graphic location or the next kind of plane we're going to buy. So that's been really hard as to watch people struggling and go, let them struggle.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, and is there, I mean, I guess, how do you do that? Because I always find there's a difference between letting someone learn and letting someone struggle. <laughs> and maybe maybe I'm just, you know, kind of, you know, playing with words a little bit. But how, how do you distinguish between, okay, this person needs to grapple with this for a little while because they need to learn how to do it and maybe even figure out their own way of doing it and, and you know, feel success and and, and make it theirs versus, when you see somebody who is you know just kind of spinning their wheels and actually not making progress and then ha- how do you help them without taking it over if you how have you kind of balanced that i find that's always a challenge for a lot of leaders
0: yeah and it's it's extra tough in a company where we have no margin for error you know, like the, 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 the principle principle doesn't hold up in aviation. If you did 80% of the flight right, you'd have a really bad flight.
1: Um, 80% of flight landed is not a good record.
0: Yeah, exactly. So we found that, you know, I have to be really, really stringent on that. And I often do have to step in and say, look, this isn't working. But I think that for us getting really clear on what matters to measure and what doesn't, and then what those critical ratios are. So, hey, if this drops below this line, I'm going to have to step in. That's below below the threshold of acceptable. But if you're playing within this sandbox, that's your box. If you go outside of these parameters, I mean, it's no different than flight instructing in many ways, where you'd say, look, as a new pilot, you could go plus or minus 100 feet on your altitude. Beyond that, you've gone outside of the acceptable standard, and then your instructor has to kind of step in and take back control. So I think in many ways, I could use a little bit of the pilot mindset there too to say, you know, they're they're not going to be able to fly it like I do, but there is an acceptable range. And I have to be able to monitor quickly and have alarms go off. If something goes outside of that range, so I could quickly step in and say, all right, I got you here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Talk to me more with a pilot mindset. I mean, I'm just, I love this idea of applying what you've learned as a pilot, you know, but both as a pilot and as an instructor in terms of how to kind of steer and navigate and make decisions and you know verify things and use checklists and things like that. Like how what, what have you been able to apply to kind of the more abstract idea of, you know, running a business, leading a business?
0: Yeah. So the the key principles, I'll kind of give you the high level of the key principles. I could tell you some ways I've applied it if you're interested in a deeper yeah. dive. But um, first and foremost, I always said I would never take off an airplane without a destination in mind. And yet I think a lot of us just float through life going, I have no idea where I want oh, to go, gosh, but I'm uh, yeah. surely burning fuel on the way to it. So that's number one: is you know always have that destination in mind. Number two is we pre-flight aircraft and we read its operating manual. And there's certain, you know, certain planes can carry cargo, certain can't. Some can fly fast, some can't. Some can go high, some can't. So it's interesting that we don't have that kind of same approach in how we look at ourselves. I think a lot of us either overinflate. Well, I think more often than not, we overinflate our capabilities. Mm-hmm. And you just can't do that with an airplane. If you get in and say this thing can hold 10,000 pounds, it's like the book says it can hold two. You sure? <laughs> And yet I find that like, and I've done it, it's an it's an irrational thing. We'll often think we could take on something that we don't have the training for, the skill for, and yet we'll like bash ourselves, you know, into the wall trying to solve things. So I think that aspect of like, understand your plane, do your pre-flight, understand yourself, are you capable? If you're not, go get trained on it, go find someone who can do it. The next thing is, you know, plot your flight plan now that you've got your destination in mind. And what's unique about pilots is they don't draw the straight line that you've probably seen that entrepreneur success line that oh, yeah. people think it's a straight, you know, straight, like upward trending line. And yet it's that like that looks like a hairball almost. It's just yeah. all over the place up and down. Pilots will take a map and go, Well, I got to go around this weather. I got to go around these mountains. And they look at hazards and things that could prevent them from achieving their mission. And they're very rational about it. And I think we so often do not do that in business. So I've applied that to the business as well. Where, what are all the things that are going to try to kill my vision for the business? What are all mm-hmm. the things that are going to try to take me out? So plotting a realistic course to success, then defining my key metrics. So the the design of an aircraft dashboard, you have your six key instruments are laid out right in front of you in eyeline. Okay. And essentially, the, the 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 training for instrument flying was no matter what happens, if things get real bad, as long as you're staring at those six instruments, you're going to be okay. If yep. you start looking at everything else on the dashboard when it's when it's like critical emergency time, you're gonna focus on the wrong things and you could get into a really bad situation. So I feel that way about the business or anything I've tried to achieve is let me define my KPIs and really monitor those. And the last piece of it is when you see small deviations, make small adjustments instead of waiting for a big, you know, mm-hmm. veering off of course, and it might be too late to recover. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of what what I've used in in. I mean, I tried to apply it to dating at one point. I've applied it to what I built in business. I've applied it to so many things in my life to say there's so much bias, cognitive bias and irrationality in the way we operate. And business requires an incredible level of rationality. And even that might not be enough. So I I think that's where it's been really useful for me to say, how do I take what I learned in the cockpit and apply it to other, you know, apply it to my business and plan that way. And, and the number one thing I would say is not arguing with reality. I, I, you, we met a lot of the same people And there's a lot of people that hope and hope and hope, and you're like, hope doesn't make businesses. It's a beautiful way to create a vision, but it's a terrible way to execute on that vision. We're
1: gonna take a quick break to hear some words
0: from our sponsors. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you wanna tell people the big news,
1: Well, I'm curious. I'm curious about that last point in terms of you know what I guess what have you done to get sort of the feedback to know you know where where maybe you've got you know a bias or you know you're you're slightly delusional about something or I guess what, what have been some of the tools or techniques or, or ways structural things that you've done to make sure that you're getting the feedback so you've got that kind of rationality uh, that perspective that you need to have to make good decisions.
0: Yeah. And I think for us, the there, there are many different factors that have already been defined in operating airplanes. So I'll take those off the table. Like that's already been analyzed to death of like, here's the acceptable ranges of operation. Yeah. But when it comes to running a business, it's like, what is that real cash reserve? And coming up with the plan, I'm saying, okay, if our cash dips below this level, I don't want to figure out what to do then. It's not enough that a light goes off on the dashboard. What are we going to plan for in that moment? So I almost have my emergency checklist. And when I go, hey, the red light came on, go to the checklist. What do we talk about when we weren't under stress that we would do in this case? And so I'm a big believer in create your emergency response plan before you're in the emergency because you're not going to have your full cognitive function in that moment. So that's probably been the biggest thing. And also building a team around me that don't share my personality profile. Mm, Interesting. My chief operating officer and I have almost an identical profile, but my CFO is like so risk, risk averse and so on the other side of things. And she's very much looking at, Hey, I'm not as comfortable with you in burning cash. I'm like, that's great. So it's having a team of people that don't agree with me and will challenge me. So we have a true debate and conversation when it comes time to come up with the best strategy. Once we agree, we all agree. Okay, we've agreed. Let's go on that course. But I, I think too many times we have people that are too similar to us, and we just follow each other. And you know, again, into the brick wall.
1: Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting one because I, I, it's one of the things I see in a lot of companies, which is you know, CEO he or she you know surrounds themselves with a whole bunch of people just like them because it's fun, right? They they like talking with people that think like them and have the same kind of perspectives and. Yeah, kind of profiles and stuff, but but there is also there's kind of the flip side of that is that if if it's too different, if people are, are you know sort of diametrically opposed, there can be a lot of friction and a lot of frustration. Or particularly when you've got you know a couple of people are very similar and then one or two people are very different, and then you've got a team dynamic issue. Like how, how do you balance the you know I want diversity and I want different perspectives and different you know risk tolerances and ways of thinking, but also I need some kind of continuity and common framework you know, something that's going to keep us stitched together so that we can actually work through some of these things. What's, how does that balance play out for you?
0: Yeah. So, and again, just for context, we, as this like very diverse company have pilots and mechanics and accounting people and salespeople, and it's like so many different like kinds of people, right? Like someone who works on an airplane is definitely not the same as a person who wants to sit in the cockpit and definitely not the mm-hmm. same as a person who wants to sit and crunch numbers all day. So we've had to work really hard at getting the underlying core values, right? of saying we all agree that we believe in the way we do things yeah. from a from the color of culture right like and we all believe in a shared vision we all want this thing yeah. we're all okay with the fact that this is a high growth company right now cuz that's again like we've this is the last year that we went into high growth mode for the first time where we have been like doubled over 9 months and not everybody wanted that and not everybody was cut out for it some people adapted yeah. others relatively opted out <laughs> Uh, in saying like, this is just not the kind of environment I want to be in. So first it was like, hey, look, if these are outside of the conditions you're even willing to operate in, you're probably not the right person for our team. But I do believe that having, it's almost like, I have got that actually, It's called like six hats or something like that? Where oh, yeah, everyone colored hats. Yeah, yeah, Edward It's almost like a, six
1: like yeah.
0: Yeah, it's an organic way to have that, where you're saying like, look, this person is always thinking about what's going to go wrong. And on some mm-hmm. level, that could be annoying, right? You could be like, this person's just a complainer. And it's like, well, actually, maybe I could reframe them as, They're my worst case scenario person. And then here's this person who's a dreamer. Great. Well, they can help me shape the vision for what could be that's outside of the realm of the realistic. And then here's my person who can do this. I think it's very, very important to say, look, let's all make sure we're agreeing to the the world we're playing in. But I actually appreciate your individual perspective. And let's learn to acknowledge and uh, and, uh, embrace those perspectives. And I think that's what an effective CEO does is saying, okay, Mm -hmm. not everyone's answer to this holds the same weight. If I'm talking about cash reserves and I'm talking to someone that's, you know, again, like I, I'll give you a good example. When someone says, like, we might lose $2 million this year, for someone who's never grown up around those kind of numbers, that's terrifying. But for someone who's saying, well, we're running a $900 million business, what's the problem? Yeah. So, like, yeah. it's like I'm only, you know, I'm not going to go to someone who is maybe a, a customer service rep to talk about a $2 million loss. They've never dealt in the realm of those numbers. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just kind of knowing who do you lean on for what, how do you create those productive discussions, and how do you not shame someone. For their pattern of behavior that actually is quite useful to you in the right context.
1: Yeah, that's a tough one. I think it is, um, you know, understanding uh, people's propensities or, you know, how they typically see things, where to apply them. And then as these people are interacting, like, how do you sort of navigate and how do you manage those interactions such that they're they're going to have the benefit of sort of perspective and diversity and getting lots of ideas and opinions on the table, but not create friction that's actually going to undermine kind of the teamwork and and actually working working people together, you know, having people work together effectively.
0: Yeah, and again, I, I'm no way would say I'm a master of any of this stuff. <laughs> I think step one is to become conscious of it. Yeah, exactly. You can be aware yeah. of it and go like, okay, at least I see what's going on here, yeah. and now I have the opportunity to tweak and adjust and. Even just note that to the team, just to be able to even bring that up to the team to say, oh, yeah. hey, just, just an awareness that this is something that's underlying. Uh, that's been, I think, the big shift for us is to say, we're definitely moving so fast that we're not perfect and we are, we are not as efficient in our communication as I'd like to be at the pace we're going. But there's at least the ability to say, like, look, let's have direct conversation. And if someone gets out of line, we have to be able to be willing to correct and receive the feedback. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I find being being open to feedback, receiving it effectively. You know, I always say, you know, make don't make things personal, don't take them personally, but we have to talk about the issues, right? We have to get into the things that are in front of us. Yeah, um, how, I'm curious what's been going on in the airline industry and and how you've had to kind of navigate, you know, changes in kind of the the market dynamics that you're in. I mean, can you give us some examples of sort of the situations that you've been on over in the past, you know, five, six, seven years here as you've kind of built up the company and What are the kind of challenges that you've had to face as the industry changes, the market changes? I mean, I know airlines have been, you know, obviously, you know, hugely affected in lots of different ways, but I'm curious what parts of that you've had to kind of figure out as you've plotted the strategy for your company.
0: Yeah. So the last, well, let's go pre-pandemic. I would say we had a 12 year run of relatively upward trend. 2008 was kind of the real big downward hit for us. And we kind of built our way out of that. So What's interesting to see is that many people in the in in the industry that had started around the two thousand nine, two thousand and ten times, they were blessed by the market forces, yeah, and I think there was a lot of overconfidence and overspending and building stuff that was teetering on as long as things went well, this was all going to be wonderful. But yeah. if there was ever a hiccup and there was a loss of of revenue, it would just burn through cash reserves and put people out. So we saw some people get wiped out by the pandemic. Some operators went away very quickly. There was also a lot of consolidation that started to happen. so, we have seen that you know we were operating in a good market for a long time, which is tough. After ten years of a good market, people don't want to move jobs. People are making good money. Everything feels safe, and so we were having a hard time getting talent to move to us at that point. And so the pandemic for us it was interesting. We kind of saw it as the opportunity where the door got opened, sure. And we went all in on gambling against the fear. And uh, you know, right away we saw for a month or two everything stopped, and we started right. to burn cash and. We said, look, we feel like the government is going to bail us out. I know they were talking about the PPP at the time. But we said, we feel like the government's going to have to bail us out. Because if they don't, everything collapses anyway. So what does it matter? We might as well start spending our cash reserves to buy planes and try to pull on talent and keep all of our team on. So when everyone else was kind of looking at it and going, This is horrible, we're not going to survive. We said this is our one opportunity where the door opened and we can very quickly make moves. So we started buying planes, pulling on people, and bet on the fact that we would catch a wave on the other side. Yep. And that's ultimately how we doubled the business very quickly. We did really well at first. We were able to buy pretty much anything we wanted to buy. We were able to hire pretty much anybody that we wanted to hire. However, I'd say like around January of this year, everyone else saw what we had predicted was <laughs> going to happen. And now Everyone's buying all kind the airplanes of. and everyone's yeah. hiring all the talent. And they're keeping who they have and they're paying more money. And every, you know, the charter industry has just exploded. We are in the only part of aviation that's seen such incredible growth right now. So I almost feel like we're probably six months to a year from seeing wherever the pieces settle. That's probably where they're going to be for a while for some people. There still might be some people making some big moves with big consolidation. But for us, we had to really navigate that and say... Uh, let's bet against the fear. Let's try to catch the landing. If we don't, we're going to get wiped out. And that's okay too, because we, even if we played conservative, there's a chance you get wiped out if everything yeah, goes exactly. to zero anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we kind of did a little bit of like game theory optimization there. And it's the first time in my life that I've gone from we have to make money every year to it's actually not about making profit and cash this year. Mm-hmm. It's about getting as much market share as we possibly can to, again, when that door closes and the opportunities do kind of stabilize, we just wanted to make sure we got far enough along. Uh, yeah. so it's a very, very different approach to things of like intelligently, how do you intelligently deploy your capital? Mm-hmm. And once again, not be biased where you're like, I bet this is going to be amazing. You're like, well, you just burnt a million dollars on a stupid initiative. Yeah. So we're trying to figure out how do we test a bunch of small things, get the feedback loop to feedback fast enough that we can then say, now put everything on the one that's showing positive signs. Yeah. So it's been a lot of, it's been a really different way of running business. And it's been me challenging my own relationship to, uh, cash management and to just the speed at which I want to move and I generally like a lot of certainty as a pilot I like a lot of certainty oh, sure. in what I'm doing yeah. and this is the one time where I had to say I can't over optimize and over plan because I'll be everyone else will have, have, have already made their moves and we'll just be starting out yeah. and so we had to really move forward and say let's just use best guesses and gut checks for the time being and, uh, and start moving in that direction but have really good feedback loops that'll sound the alarm if we, if we did do something that doesn't make sense
1: yeah, I love the idea of, you know, kind of running experiments and learning and collecting data and then making bigger decisions or placing bigger bets. What are some of the ways that you made sure that whatever you were doing, you were going to get the information? Was there anything you did consciously to, you know, uh, be measuring certain things or or the things that allowed you to get better data, more data or data that was going to be helpful in making the next decision?
0: Yeah, I mean, we created a ton of dashboards. More than anything, we've got these crazy levels of, of connections now between different departments. In fact, my, my coach said something that kind of informed why we did this. He said, um, you'd think value is created in the vertical lines in an org chart. It's actually created in the horizontal relationships. Ooh, interesting, yeah. So, you know, how well our sales department speaks to our finance team or how well our flight op- operation speaks to our maintenance team, it's really in the way that information transfers between these different groups that really shows the health of our company and our, our ability to do things. Because otherwise everyone's operating with blinders on. It really does become a silo. So we've spent a lot of time doing cross-functional meetings and creating KPIs that are hinging on multiple departments' inputs. So we could see like, uh, hey, I'll give you an example. If we're not selling enough of demand in a particular month, that could be for two or three reasons, actually. It could be our sales team's not effective, we don't have enough pilots to fly the airplanes, or the maintenance isn't reliable on the planes and they're always broken. So if you don't have the communication between the departments, you wouldn't even know why. You'd go, we're not selling enough. No one has any idea why. Well, hey, if it turns out that the sales team's not effective enough, we know where we need to spend our money versus someone going, hey, it's probably, let's blame maintenance or let's blame uh, the fact we don't have enough pilots or whatever it is. So it's, it's really important for us to say, we can see what's going on, but now it's so critical at the pace we're going. We need more analysis and we need someone to come with a narrative to say, I've done the analysis and I know why the numbers are doing what they're doing. It's not enough just to have trend lines anymore.
1: Yeah, yeah, I love that whole idea of um, you know kind of root cause analysis, right? Like, like it's not you can't stay at the surface, right? If you just sit there and try to, you know, focus on symptoms without kind of digging into what's really driving this and finding kind of the root cause of this, you're never going to see systemic change, right? Like, you you really got to get into this. And one of the things I always love about the airline industry is just how good they've been over the years of of really getting at that core. You know, what is the root cause? What is the core cause for some of these issues? And how do we make changes? You know, around on the systems, you know, whether it's our checklists or, you know, things like that, that will prevent these things from happening, you know, in the past, how have you, I guess, what are some things you do as a company to really kind of understand the systemic issues that are coming up and, and really solve them at a, at a root level? You mentioned some of the cross-functional, the, the cross-departmental communications and things. How, how do those actually play out? What are those conversations like?
0: Yeah, so it's a lot of, um, well, one, we use something called 15.5 uh, as a way of having employees report and every every one of our employees on the platform, except like the pilots don't really use that. They're in a different kind of structure, yeah, okay. given the nature of the work that they do. But uh, generally, all of our employees will report in there, you know, what challenges did you see this week? And we try to roll all that up to say we're starting to see patterns emerge that are telling a different story. Versus again, someone saying like I'm frustrated we're not selling enough. Well, again, if we look at the entire company's feedback, we can start to see these things. So that's one of the ways we do it is we tr- we start to look for some of the you know, some of the story that 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 comes out in those details. The other thing that we do is you know we run our business on the scaling up methodology, yep. uh, which was originally I guess Rockefeller habits. And so we have these, you know, daily huddles, weekly rhythms, monthly meetings, quarterly meetings, and we really try to spend a lot of time in those saying, like, what is the one of our questions is what is the number one thing preventing you from achieving your uh, initiative this quarter or your department being successful this quarter? And when people answer the question, we'll often challenge each other and say. Is that the thing though? Like, yeah, you may mm. have identified the number one problem, but are you really talking at the level of where the constraint is? Yeah. So we've recently done a lot of exercises around constraint theory sure. and you know figuring out like where is the actual bottleneck? Because as you know, if you solve at the wrong level of bottleneck, it doesn't really do anything. Yeah. Right. So it's like it's a it's a it's a downstream or an upstream problem. So we've really spent a lot of time in our meetings talking about that stuff, and I wish there was a more formidable process that we could go through to do it but it is really just a lot of talking. Yeah. It's a lot of challenging each other and talking and saying it is mm-hmm. so easy to take the first answer as the right answer because it's it's hard zoom, you know, zoom fatigue. <laughs> and it's literally sitting and saying it's like meditating, like don't lose the focus on what's really going on here. Does this answer check in with, like, if you check in with yourself, does this answer feel like the right answer? Or do you feel like it's a, it's a lazy answer? And if it's a lazy answer, do you have the courage to speak up and say, I don't, I don't think that's it. Let's go deeper. And it's, there's no easy way to do this. It's just truly the, I think it's the hardest thing to do.
1: Yeah. Well, it reminds me of what you're saying around the, um, you know, having your sort of emergency plans, like you don't want to create your emergency plan in the emergency, right? Like you've, you've got to do it when you're thinking clearly and you've got the space and time. I think the same thing about that root cause analysis, right? Like you've got to have the mindset, you've got to have the context, you've got to have you know kind of the space, the container to actually have do that investigation, do that thinking, actually have that discussion. Because sometimes it can be a little sensitive, right? You're talking about you know people's performance, potentially failures, and things like that. And if if people start getting defensive or start getting you know aggressive around things, it's going to shut that process down. So I think yeah, creating creating that space is is really important. So you mentioned that uh, you know you've you've been making some bets. Uh, you know things have been kind of playing out in the industry. It's going to be a couple more months. Where do you hope to be as a company in in the next you know one two
0: three years? Like what does success look like? Where are you hoping to achieve? Um, so for us, it's really about the, the the number of planes we have. I mean, at the end of the day, that's the that's our number one metric. Mm-hmm. And right now, so we started last year with a fleet of five planes. We're now at eleven and wow. we hope to be probably 15 by the end of the year at the end of 2023 we'd like to be 30 so yeah. we're you know we're pushing pretty hard to make that happen. Well interesting I'll be curious to uh, we can do a follow up episode to see uh, see how you're doing on the plane count
1: and the expansion of the business. It's a fascinating space and I just I see it's you know a lot of things happening there so i will be curious Absolutely. to see how things play out. Nick thank you so much for taking the time today. It's been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about
0: you about Ventura Air Services, what's the best way to get that information? Sure, so you can check out venturajet.com. If you'd like to see more about our business and uh, if you're interested in personally connecting, you can find me on LinkedIn under Nick Tarasio.
1: Great. I'll make sure the links are in the show note here so we can get that. Nick, thank you so much for taking the time today. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Great chatting with you. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our future episodes. See you next time.
0: You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt.